Isaiah 44, uh, starting in verse 6. And before we jump into the passage, I want to give you some background information as to what the prophets are. A lot of time we, uh, we reference these Bible references like the poetic writings or the letters or the gospels or the prophets, and we don't really explain uh, where they're at in Scripture and what they're doing. But the prophets is, is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. A lot of times they're very poetic, but the, the prophets are some crazy dudes. You read Scripture, you'll get some insane stuff from the prophets. These guys would have visions. Some of them would run naked through the streets prophesying. Somebody cooked food over their own feces. It's just insane, like the, st- the stories you get for the prophets. Um, but in, in, in Israel's history, right, Israel was given this promise that uh, God was going to bless them, make them a great nation through the family of Abraham, and he leads them out of this country of Egypt from slavery, and he leads them through the wilderness to the promised land. Um, they keep messing up and stuff, but still God establishes them as a kingdom under this guy named David. And then David dies, and all these other kings start to pop up for the, the kingdom of Israel. Um, so much so that, or they, they start messing up so much that the kingdom actually splits into Judah and Israel, and they're both really corrupt. But as this time that they're really corrupt, and they're forsaking God, and they're not, they're not following after God in a faithful way, God raises up this, this person called a prophet. And so what a prophet would do is he would call Israel to be faithful to the covenant. He would say, Israel, you guys are, are, are uh, worshiping idols, you're, you're being unjust, you're not following after God like you're supposed to. So this idol had the, had the role of saying, the God, your God is calling you to come back to the covenant. So in this sense, prophets were like covenant watchdogs, calling them to, to return to um, the covenant and to uphold the terms of the Torah, which they agreed to at one point. And specifically, Isaiah is one of those prophets. You have Elijah and, uh, and Elisha, um, and Isaiah was one of the prophets that existed at this time when Israel's really unfaithful. And um, basically what happens is Israel's so unfaithful to the covenant that God allows the countries or the nations of Assyria and Babylon to come in, take them over, and lead them to exile as slaves. So the first half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, documents that judgment, that because Israel is unfaithful, God is going to take them and take them out of the land that he promised them. But then there's this second half in 44 through 60 or so, uh, the second half of Isaiah's books, all about hope, that although God's going to lead them into exile and he's going to take them out of the land, God is still going to restore them. Like God's not done with them as a people. And that's where we get our passage tonight. It's in this part where God says through, through Isaiah that there's still hope. There's still hope. But part of um, Israel returning to being faithful to God after this period of judgment is understanding that God is worthy and idols are not worthy. So in this section that we're going to pull our passage from, this is what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is showing how God should be the only object of our worship and how idols are unworthy of our worship. So that's the big backdrop of what's happening, and we'll see kind of the particulars of that as we move forward. But um, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump into this this scripture verse. 
Uh, Father, we are we're humbly here um, as people who need you, who desperately need you. God, I pray that we would not simply be people who just want to learn about you. We would not be people that simply uh, just want to hang out with friends or just get our parents off our back so that we can carry on with our lives. God, I pray that we would truly be people at our, in our heart of hearts that we're seeking after you, we're pursuing you. And God, if that's not the case for some student here, I pray that your spirit would move mightily in their hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is what the prophet Isaiah says. It says, thus says the Lord, and that was a really typical way for prophets to talk. They're speaking on behalf of God. The King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. This is what God says. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? So the first thing we have to recognize when we're looking at how God is the only object of our worship is that God is truly worthy. God is truly worthy. And Isaiah proclaims how he's worthy in that passage. He talks about how he's eternal. He's the first and the last. He's the only one true God. There is no God other than Yahweh, the Lord. And because he's the only God, there's no one like him. He's unique. And more than that, he's the only God that can save. He is the rock of their salvation. So we can kind of summarize it this way. God is truly worthy. When we think about God as our object of worship, we, we worship him because he's worthy of our worship. He's the one true God, and he has the power to save. There is no other God than our God. The reason we worship our God is not because it's convenient, not because he makes us feel good. The reason we should worship God is because he's the only one true God. And, and flowing out of that, because he's the true God, he's the only one that can reach into your mess, into your sin, and pull you out and restore you to the destiny that you have in Jesus Christ. And because of that, he's worthy to be worshipped. Right? So this is releasing you from the chains of experiential worship. And what I mean by that is if you only worship God when you feel like it, you only worship God when there's the light, when there's the fog, when there's the right decibels to worship, right? If you only worship God based on your experience, you won't always worship God. He won't always be the object of your worship. But if you worship God because he's truly worthy, and that doesn't change, and he's the one true God, and he has the power to save you, then your object of worship will stay fixed, right? You will always have your object of worship be God, if it's not simply based on your experience, but who he is and what he can do. So why do we worship God? We worship God because he alone is worthy of our worship. He's the one true God. He's the only one who can save us. Nothing else can fulfill the expectations that God can fill in your life. Nothing can deliver you from the bondage of your sin and brokenness like God can. So that's why he must be our only object of worship. And, and as you look in worship, you'll see that God is described as jealous. You guys ever think about God being jealous? He's actually jealous for your worship. 
He wants you to worship him. So when God looks down and sees that you have not traded your worship for an idol, you've traded your worship for success, for money, for sports, for academics, when he sees that you have placed your worship in something else, God is jealous. He says, no, you should be finding that praise, that satisfaction in me, in me alone. Now, there's a difference, right, in, in jealous. Like, we're jealous people because we're petty, right? It's like, I want that person's that. I want to be able to do what that person can do. I want to have that item, or I want to have that talent, right? We're petty. But God's worship is not like that. God, or God's, not worship, God's jealousy is not like that. God's jealous because he's the only one who deserves what you're giving to someone else. It's a righteous jealousy. He's, he's saying, look, that person doesn't deserve the worship and adoration and the time and the effort that you're giving it. That, that, that thing you're doing, that thing you're worshiping is not worthy. It doesn't deserve it. And so that's why God's jealous. And he's also loving in his jealousy. God's loving in his jealousy because he knows that that will destroy you. If you continue to worship an idol, find your satisfaction in a relationship, in popularity, in anything that's other than God, that will destroy you. You'll be left shameful. You'll be left broken and further and further in sin. So God is jealous because he's, he deserves it and because he loves you and cares for you, right? So that's, that's the type of, of, of jealousy that God has for us. And, you know, it's, it's like kind of one of those examples. Has anyone, anyone ever gotten credit for something that you did? Like, have you ever done like a group project? I hated group projects in school because I always did none of the work I'm just joking. <laughs> I did all the work, and then this one schlump who, like, did nothing would come in, and he would get the same grade as me, and he didn't do anything, right? It's like, I, I, okay, let's, let's kind of draw up a scenario. Okay, this will be a funny scenario. Say you're an artist, and you paint this piece of art, okay? It's beautiful. You're, like, changing the art game, right? Like, you are launching a career into art that's going to just be leaps and bounds above the art competition, you know? And you can just look back, you're so proud of it. Now imagine that your sibling or your best friend comes in, they see this piece of art, and the next thing you know is they're on TV and they're giving interviews about your piece of art. Like, yeah, and they're taking credit for it. They're like, yeah, I drew the lines this way and, you know, I was able to make it look all cool and whatever, and the TV host or whatever is like, wow, this is amazing. You are going to be an artist that's known for generations. People are going to study you. You're going to be put in the Louvre, and you're going to be like right next to the Mona Lisa. It's going to be amazing. You're such an amazing artist, and your sibling's like, I know, amazing, <laughs> and, and then the next thing you know is people are calling your sibling or your best friend saying, I'll give you millions and millions and millions of dollars for that painting. I haven't seen that movie, but that, that sound, is this the exact same thing? Wow. I was pretty happy with my ability to come up with this illustration from scratch, but anyway. So, the artist is, now your sibling is getting offered millions of dollars, billions of dollars, life savings, for your artwork, 
What do you think your response would be? Kill them? Oh, okay. <laughs> Not actually kill them, I'm just joking. But you would be, let's just say in the slightest, you would be a little frustrated. Like, wow, that's really upsetting. Right? Now listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Let's bring it back down here. That is just a microscopic example of how we slight God. That's just simply a, a speck of dust compared to how we treat God and how we trade our worship for worship of idols. God looks down and he sees us or other people taking credit for what he only deserves, right? Because God didn't only just make one piece of artwork. He, he literally spoke the world into existence. Colors and gradients and textures and all this just flowed from his mouth, his brain, everything. All the universe is his. And when he looked down and saw someone taking credit for it or an exchange of worship, what he did is he decided... He's going to step in to his creation. He's going to take on the form of a man, and he's going to act like he's the one who committed idolatry. And he's going to take the punishment for that idolatry upon himself and then offer freely the gift of righteousness to us. Amazing, right? So how could we not continue to give God what he's worthy of? How could we not turn to him and, and worship him, right? How do we not worship a God who's so worthy of it and who's so gracious to us? And it's an amazing thing that we see as, as the writer of uh, Isaiah continues. He talks about how idol worship is so illogical. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Like, it's insane. Do we realize what we're doing? And so you kind of get this cool story uh, in the rest of Isaiah, but it, this is what it shows, that idols, unlike God, are completely unworthy of our worship. While God is truly worthy of our worship, idols are completely unworthy of them. They do not deserve the worship that we give them. Now, okay, when we talk about idols, we don't actually worship statues, or uh, at least if anyone in here is worshiping a statue in their bedroom or something. Please let me know. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I'll talk to your parents when. Um, but now, listen, we, we, tend, we tend to make an idol out of, uh, of sports, of academics, of popularity, of um, money, of sex, of pleasure, drugs, alcohol. And we take something. This is what an idol is, is when you take something of creation, and you elevate it to the position of God. When you take something that is created, right, even a good thing like, like marriage or church or ministry, right, or academics, like you should be good in school, you can take that and make that into an idol because you treat it as your God when it doesn't deserve to be treated as your God. So as we talk about idols, I should have probably clarified this on the way front end, we're not talking about wooden statues necessarily or like golden calves. If any of you have golden calves that you're worshiping, that is still a problem. I'm not saying that's not bad, but that's probably not the situation for us. 
So anyway, um, Isaiah's going to go forward here and talk about how idols are completely unworthy, and he kind of gives this, this cool little story. But this is what he opens with. All who fashion idols are nothing. Notice, he's not saying that idols are nothing. He's saying that everyone who fashions idols are nothing. And he goes on later to make the point that that's because idols are nothing. Here's a key point, just remember. You will become like what you worship. You will become like what you worship. Because as you worship something, it's in the very nature of who we are as human beings. We become like what we worship. So if we continue to live our lives worshiping idols, we will become like our idols, which is nothing, meaningless, pointless. Anyway, and um, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses or their worshipers neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Human. That's a big point. Think about that. Humans are literally creating these gods, and they're worshiping. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So we fashion and we craft these idols and worship things other than God, and the two things, it profits us nothing, they profit us nothing, and they lead us to shame. If we are in a life of, or in a, in a pattern of life of worshiping idols, of not finding our one true object of worship to be God, they will profit us nothing, and they will only bring us further and further into shame. Think about it. If you make a God out of video games, which I'm sure happens, at the end of the day, what have you really profited? Once you become number one in Fortnite, there's a sinking feeling in your heart. It's like, I've accomplished this, but I've accomplished nothing. Like, I get to tell my friends, I was the last one in Fortnite. Amazing. Right? Can you imagine? Like, there's no profit there. At the end of the day, there's not going to be people speaking at your funeral saying, he became first in Fortnite. <laughs> Amazing man, right? Or just think about in sports, right? Unless you're going to be LeBron James or who's the best football player ever to live? I don't know. Not Tom Brady. Deflate Gate ruined his legacy forever. It's over. Joe Montana, whatever. Um, or Babe Ruth, right? Unless you're going to be those people. Even so, but even so, think, think, in, a, shh, 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 think in a thousand years once... Those sports don't even exist anymore because robots will be playing sports for us. Your generation or your legacy will be totally done. Or even just think about this. Your great-grandchildren will probably never know your name. Your legacy will diminish, right? If you think about uh, your grades, like amazing, you're like a perfect GPA, um, you know, all these things are good, but once you get past college and graduate work, you get your PhD and you just keep going, you're known as a really smart guy, that's awesome, and then you die. Profits you nothing if your idol becomes something that is not in God. If you begin to worship something that's not in God, you will end up going down a road where it profits you nothing. Now, we'll talk a little bit as we move on how it's still good to pursue these things, obviously, but you cannot make it your sole item of worship and praise. 
And ultimately, it will lead you to a place of shame. If you find this, this pursuit to be uh, what you dedicate your life to, of being popular, of being in a relationship, I promise you, if you hinge your hopes on that, you'll be put to shame. So um, Isaiah continues and he gives this, this, uh, this interesting story. Um, he says there's this ironsmith. He takes a cutting tool. He works it, works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers, works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So that's the ironsmith. Pretty much he's just showing that the person who's making this idol is human and they can grow weary. But then he goes on to the story about this carpenter. It says the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So he's made this idol. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of the cedar, a part of the wood, he uses it to warm himself. He kindles a fire, bakes bread, also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, think about this. The rest of it, he makes into a god his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my god. What Isaiah is doing is showing us how ridiculous idolatry is. He says the same thing you take, and you use it for food, to make a fire, get some bread, make yourself warm. And you take the other half of that same thing and you worship it. You fall down and worship it. And here's the thing. It is absolutely crazy that we take something and elevate it to the status of God in our lives. It's crazy. It is totally ridiculous, totally backwards. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Now, why? Why, why do we continue to do this if it's insane? And he says, they know not, nor do they discern, for... He has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination, an idol, something God hates? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. Think how backwards that. Uh, ashes? probably don't taste good. Don't think they're very nourishing either. But, that, but that's what we do when we're, when we're engaging in, in idol worship. We're feeding on ashes, nothing. And a deluded heart has led us astray, and he cannot deliver himself. It's a very depressing existence. He's blind, he's deluded in his heart, and he can't deliver himself. And, and then he says, is there not a lie in my right hand? His idol's is this idol not a lie? So that's the condition of people who, just like me and you, honestly, when we seek to elevate other things to be worshipped other than God. We're simply feeding on ashes. We're living a lie. 
we are blind and we are deluded in our hearts thinking that this thing, this idol, this idea of success or money or, or sex or pleasure or anything will give us what we want. What truly deep down in our hearts we're living a lie when we think that idol will satisfy my deepest longings as a human being. And we're simply setting ourselves up to be more ashamed than we've ever been. So here's the thing. This is something very serious. Paul says, um, or, uh, or yeah, yeah let, me, let me note these two things from it. Idols are temporary, and idols cannot save us. Idols are temporary and cannot save us. That's so, um, so opposite of what God can do for us. God is eternal. He's always there for us. And the fact that idols are temporary show that they're, they're not capable of giving us long-lasting true joy, and they can't save us. But in all of this, um, it's, it's talked of as an abomination, as a lie. And God takes idolatry very, very seriously. In Exodus 34, he says, smash down the idols, break down the altars, tear down the pillars, for I am a jealous God. That's not like, hey guys, maybe manage your idol worship a little better. Like, can we handle it? Like, keep it at home, you know? No, it's kill it, destroy it, get rid of it. This is an abomination. So, and this is what Paul says in, in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That's why we need to take this seriously, because God is taking it seriously. On account of our idolatry, the wrath of God is coming upon us. So if God's taking it seriously, we need to put some serious measures to safeguard our hearts and minds to, to ensure that God is the only object of our worship. So I, I've got seven things. We'll roll through them real quickly. Um, but these, these are things to set up how you can combat idolatry in your life and make sure God is the only object of your worship. Number one, daily look upon the glory of God. The greatest way to combat idolatry ensure, and to ensure that only God is the object of your worship is by daily looking on how worthy it, he is. As you look in creation, as you look in God's word, and you see his glory, you see how great, how powerful, how righteous, how holy, how loving, how merciful, how gracious he is, you will naturally fall on your knees in adoration. As you see how awesome and wonderful God is, the more and more you see how awesome and wonderful God is, the more you will just respond in worship. So daily look upon that glory because the more and more you see how great God is, the more you will worship him. Number two, routinely check your heart for what you love. We talk about this a lot. Um, guys, it's not, not simply about what you know. God's not going to say, oh, uh, on, on judgment day, he's not going to ask you, okay, so what do you know about me? He's going to say, do you love me? Do you care for me? Did you seek me? Did you desire me? That's something that happens in our heart. We have to routinely check what we love. One of um, my favorite theologians is named uh, John Calvin. He says, your heart is an idol factory. You will always turn out new idols. 
be the newest and most improved edition of an idol, I promise you. So you have to daily, routinely, continually check to make sure that your heart is loving God and God alone. So get in that rhythm of clarifying your loves and what you really worship. Number three, just recognize that your idol, whatever you may be elevating as worthy of your worship other than God, recognize that that idol is unworthy of your worship. Totally unworthy of your worship. Your time, your devotion, your efforts are, are not best well spent on that idol. See that you're just feeding on ashes. See that you're finding your hopes and dreams in something that is temporary, that won't save you, that will profit you nothing, that will only bring you to shame. Recognize that. Number four, ask, plead, thirst for a pure desire for God. One of my favorite psalms that I pray over and over again is, my flesh and my heart may fail, but you are my strength and my portion forever and ever. It's simply saying, God, I want to desire you. I want to desire you. So plead for that. Seek that. Thirst for a desire for God. Number five. So in your enjoyment of God, God's your sole object of worship, enjoy the things of God with gratitude. Enjoy your relationships. Enjoy the blessing of of fun and fellowship and Enjoy the occasional time with with video games. Enjoy the um, friendship that you have and the relationships that you can have in in marriage and and all those things. You can enjoy the things of God without turning them into an idol. You understand me? You can enjoy the things of God that he's created for your enjoyment without turning them into an idol. And one of the key ways to do that is whether you can enter into that with gratitude. If you are grateful for the sport that you're able to play and you're playing it for the glory of God, you will have the tendency not to turn it into an idol if you recognize it's a gift from God that he's given you to glorify himself, right? So um, that's a whole other sermon in itself, but try to to focus on gratitude. Uh, Number six, train your desire for God through godly habits. This is another thing we talk about. If you're seeking God, you're asking for him to give you a pure desire, God will train that desire. He'll train your heart through habits. Your heart, whether you realize it or not, is being trained to love certain things based on your rhythms and rituals, right? If you are constantly checking social media and um, you wake up in the morning, first thing you grab is your phone. The last thing you do before you go to sleep is grab your phone, check social media. Whether you realize it or not, you've been training your heart to, uh, to love social approval so much that your heart is, is, is linked to that in some sense, right? So we need to apply that same principle to our relationship with God, training ourselves to love God more through the spiritual disciplines of, of getting in Scripture, of prayer, of being in community with one another, of gathering to, to sing and to hear God's word preached. Number seven, if an idol is too strong in your life, there's something that you just cannot resist the temptation to elevate it to a godlike status. Do whatever it takes to reorient your desire, to get, it, get that idol out of your life for a while so that you can reorient, recalibrate, recenter your desire on God himself. Listen, I mean, if you, if you cannot have God as the only object of your worship with this thing in your life, take a fast 
fasting um, or abstaining from that for a little bit is not going to kill you. And listen, this is, a, this is a serious thing. We're talking about our hearts here. At the end of the day, we have to consider what we want our lives to mean and what we want our lives to be about. Right? Do, do you guys realize that you've got one shot, you've got one life to live, and your heart is of the most, is so important. It's so important that God did what he did in Jesus Christ. He took your sin on himself so that he could restore in you the worship that he rightfully deserves. Because in what, what God did is he made you a, a worshiper of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So guys, do whatever it takes to make sure that's what your life is centered around. Do whatever it takes. I don't stand here as someone who's perfectly doing that myself or someone who's perfectly done it. I'm standing here as a sinner saved by grace who's hopefully being carried along by God to do what only he can do through me. And I hope that you guys can join that journey with me, that process together so that we as a group, we as a, a community of believers are pursuing God as the only object of our worship. That, that's what I, my hope and prayer is for us.